I, uh, uh, I, I, have the, uh, I have the privilege and the opportunity to be involved in a lot of uh, ecumenical and interfaith discussion. Uh, and one of the things that is uh, common, I think, to all of us who do that is that when we find ourselves facing a, uh, an especially thorny question or a difficult point of interpretation, uh, reflexively, uh, whether it's a scholar or a rabbi or a priest or a minister, uh, we'll, one of us will say, well, you know, my teacher always said, uh, we have the privilege of having today one of my teachers, uh, to the extent that I say anything that makes sense theologically, you have this guy to blame. Uh, all faults, of course, are my own, but uh, it is uh, an honor and a privilege and a joy to have with us Today, Dr. John Frankie, will you please welcome him? Thank you. Are we, are we're good. Okay. Thanks, Jason. It's good to be with you. You know, Jason's a humble guy, and uh, he was pretty well-formed theologically before I got hold of him. Nevertheless, I will say that if you like what he hears, then that he got that from me. The stuff you don't like, that's on him. Uh, just kidding. And I think I have the solution to the Canada Day thing. It was Canada Day July 1st last year and every year since 1867. And it will be Canada Day on July 1st this year. Yeah, 1867, right? Yeah, I'm one of the few Americans I know. That I'm a big Canada file. I love Canada, partly because I like hockey. But uh, anyway, don't get me started. I also have to say that uh, that's the most awesome church bulletin or whatever you call it that I've ever seen. Uh, I'm a huge, huge Cincinnati Reds fan. And I was at the game last night and, um, and we were sitting with a couple other friends of ours and one of them said, uh, so, you know, you brought John down here to Baltimore to preach and you're going to a game. And I said, yeah. It's more like we decide to go to a game and, oh, by the way, while I'm here, shall I preach? So as soon as I walked in, I mean, I re- this is the scary thing. I remember that cover when I was a kid. I think it's probably 1972. That's Johnny Bench, for those of you who don't know, the greatest catcher who ever lived. Um, and the Reds had it. They played Baltimore in the World Series in 1970, which is the last time the Reds were in Baltimore. And then they had a lousy year in 71 and 72. They came back and had a good year. And so, you know, there's the picture. One more thing on that, just to let you know a little bit of who I am. Um, I'm a huge baseball fan. I listen going to bed just about every night to an old radio broadcast of a baseball game. I collect them, right? So I've got, I think the earliest one I have is the 1939 World Series between the Reds and the Yankees, okay? So I'm going to pick something that I'm going to drive from Philadelphia to Baltimore to listen to. What should it be? And I like to pick baseball games. So like I said, the last time the Reds were in Baltimore was 1970 for the series. And I have every game of the 1970 World Series on CD. So I picked game four, which was the one game the Reds won in that series, in Memorial Stadium, and I thought, well, if I listen to that coming down here to Baltimore, maybe the Reds will do well, and of course it worked out just like I planned. Okay, so it's good to be with you. 
Uh, if you didn't know, the Reds won 10 to 5 last night. So, okay, you ready to run me out? Let's get serious here and turn our attention to the Word of God. <clears throat> Polls are occasionally taken uh, by folks who want to know a question like this. Why don't people go to church? It's been said, and it's debatable, but it's been said that America used to be, at least, some, in some sense, a Christian nation. And I don't want to get into the details of whether that is or isn't true, but lots of people used to go to church. Right? When World War I ended, people flocked to church. When World War II ended, they flocked to church to give thanks to God in times of crisis. But people have observed that that's less true today, right? It's less true. Um, and if we went further up to the northeast and into New England, we'd see a place that's getting to look a lot more like Europe all the time, right? So people ask the question, well, gee, why don't people go to church? Especially because polls consistently show Americans are still pretty religious. And many of the religious folks that are part of our nation are Christian. But they don't go to church. I have a friend who wrote a book about that one. He said, they like Jesus, but not the church. And you wonder, how can that be? I mean, we're nice people, right? Who wouldn't want to hang out with us on a day like this? So people ask questions. They take polls. Why? Here's the interesting thing. The polls consistently show the following top two answers again and again. Answer number one, why don't you go to church? Those people are hypocrites, so I don't go. Possible response, well, you know, come along. You'll fit right in. Uh, yeah, we cop to that. Um, yeah, we wrestle with that, but it's part of kind of being human. Answer number two to that question is a little bit more challenging. Why don't you go to church? Because Christians are always fighting with each other. They're always fighting. They fight amongst themselves. They split churches. Uh, they fight them with other churches. Always. And, and really, I get enough of that during the week. I get enough of that at home. I get enough of that at work. No thanks. I'm not interested in more of that. And if that's not part of my life, maybe I work in a great place, or I have a great home, why would I want to get into that? Now, it's hard to give a glib answer to that one, like it is the first one, right? Yeah, we, we have some failings, right? We know that. It's part of our message. We're sinners. Uh, we have failings. That's why God sent Jesus. Second one's trickier, right? Because that we realize in our failure, we are uh, living out our faith in a way that... Uh, is causing folks to say, I'm not interested in being part of that. And 
What's really challenging to me is it, this happens to be something that is directly addressed in Scripture. So I want to turn some attention this morning to uh, John's Gospel. And as was mentioned, uh, ver- uh, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. But this is part of a portion of John's Gospel that has been called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. Jesus has been with His disciples. They've celebrated... Uh, what we've come to call the Last Supper. And now, before heading out to the garden and getting ready to face the cross, Jesus prays. He prays for His disciples. But in verse 20, He turns His attention or makes His attention more explicit. He says, My prayer now is not for them alone. It's not just for those who are gathered here with me alone. I'm now praying for all who believe in me through their message. I'm now going to pray, I'm also praying, for all those who will believe in me through their message. Folks, that's just about all of us. I mean, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promises here in John's Gospel, will come on the disciples. He says that's actually why it's better that I should go. Because I'm going to send the Helper. And the Helper is going to remind you, the disciples, of the things that I've taught. The Helper is going to guide you into truth. The Helper is going to give you courage. The Helper is going to... We can say theologically, inspire writings so that they're the Word of God. And based on the work of these disciples, the church is formed by the power of the Spirit. And so Jesus is here praying for the church and those of us who gather now in Jesus' name. Jesus is praying for us. And look at this prayer. What does Jesus pray? As He turns His attention to all of the church. Those who will believe because of the message of the disciples. It's striking that He prays for unity. That all of them may be one that all of them, all those who are going to believe based on this message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as You are in Me and I am in You. May they also be in us so that the world might believe that You have sent Me. I have given them the glory that You gave Me that they may be one as we are one. This is is powerful. Uh, This is powerful. A couple things that I'll note here. First of all, the nature of the unity. The nature of the unity. Uh, Well, people say, yeah... We can do this. We can be together. We can be unified. I mean, you know, okay, I can put up 
with those other people. I don't particularly like them. I've heard this one, I can love them but not like them. Uh, you know, we can, we can kind of get together and, folks, that is not what Jesus is praying for. What's the nature of the unity that these folks who believe, based on the message of the disciples, it's that they will be one the way you, Jesus, prays to the Father, and I are one. Yeah, I think that's probably, that's, I get that. You know, they don't, they love each other, but they don't like each other very much. No. No. Complete, total unity. Interdependence. Can we say it this strongly? The Father and the Son would not be who they are apart from the relationship that they had with each other and that they have. Getting into that had-had thing again. Right? They're one in this total reliance and self-dependence on each other. We see that in Jesus' ministry. Jesus doesn't come as an autonomous individual. I'm God. I'll do what... Jesus says, I don't do anything but what the Father tells me to do. The Father has a mission in the world. Uh, The Father sends Jesus to work out that mission. There's a dependence that the Father has on Jesus. They are dependent on each other. They don't just tolerate each other. They're dependent on each other. I like to say it this strongly, and we don't have lots of time to unpack this, so maybe this will be a little provocative and Jason can help you think through this, right? Um, uh, But they would not be who they are, Almighty God, apart from the interdependent relationship that they have with each other. It's a way of saying God is dependent on God for being God. The nature of this unity is total self-dependence. There's another piece that let's just focus on for a minute. The nature of this unity is not sameness. It's not sameness. Because Jesus and the Father are not the same. They are different. This is a classic Christian Trinitarian theology that we believe that in one God and only one, but who exists as three co-eternal, co-equal, but nevertheless different members, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the one God The one God lives life in difference. So, classic Christian theology said, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all God. They are one. And everything that's true about the Father is true of the Son and the Spirit, except that the Father is not the Son and is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father and not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father and not the Son. They share unity, oneness, in the midst of their difference. So the kind of unity that's called here 
is not sameness. Now, why make a point like that? Because there are folks there that will take this passage very literally and say, we've got to be one. We've got to have unity. And I know how we'll sort through that. I or a particular group will set themselves up as the ones who know truth absolutely and then say, now, you need to agree with me completely and then we'll be one. Right? That works. I'll go set up my group over there. I'll assume that the truth resides with me and my tradition, my church, my group, whichever that, I'm Presbyterian. Right? And I'll say, yeah, I believe this and you've got to be one. And so if you're really believing, you'll think like me. Problem solved. Except it doesn't work that way. The point here in the nature of this unity is that it's a unity in the midst of difference. It's not sameness. The kind of unity that God is calling for is a unity that lives in the midst of difference and in dependence on difference. This is why tolerance is not enough. Right? That's the notion that says, look, I kind of know the way it is. And I'll put up with these other people. I'll tolerate them. Even though I got all kinds of issues and problems. I'll put up with them because, you know, we're trying to do this. Tolerance is not enough. The kind of unity that we see Jesus praying for is a unity in the midst of difference that's self-dependent. We are dependent on Christians that are very different than ourselves, whoever we are. We are dependent on them in order to do the mission that God's called us to. We need each other. We need each other, you need each other, in this particular local community. But the other churches meeting this morning in Baltimore, different though they may be in some respects than you theologically, you need them. They need you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives us this great metaphor, this great image of the body. We're told that the one who directs the body, that shapes the body, that forms the body is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives different gifts, performs different kinds of working amongst the whole body such that no part can say to any other part, I don't need you. It's, it's self-dependence. And those parts aren't the same. They're different gifts. There are different theological traditions. There's diversity in the body. We don't just... The call of Jesus in this prayer is way beyond toleration. I'll put up with them. It's, I am dependent on them in difference, in their difference. Do you see that? This is a striking claim. The nature of this unity. The nature of this unity. It's a unity of self-dependence. And it's a unity in the midst of diversity. 
This is the divine design. Now, one of the ways we work that out uh, is going to be very challenging to us, right? Because it's calling us away from ourselves. We'll get to that in a minute. Here's another thing I'd like to emphasize in these verses that we've met, we've just read. Um, What does that unity look like in the world? Because some people have said, yeah, John, I think you're right about what you've just said. Um, Yes, it's a unity in the midst of diversity. Yes, it's a unity that manifests itself in self-dependence. And they look out in the world and in the church and they don't see that. And so they say, yeah, it's really true. But the way it manifests itself in the world, you see, because this is a spiritual thing, is it's a unity that is invisible. It's invisible. See, we know in Christ that this is a unity that we have, that we're called to. And it really is true. If you could only see through all the struggles and the strife and the battles and the splits and the separations and the fighting, we know it's really there. It's invisible. People talk about the invisible unity of the church. All that that we've said really is true, just people can't see it. But see, I think Jesus in this prayer shuts that option off. Because He says... He prays that this would be the unity, that we would be one, that they would be one, even Father as you and I are one. So that what? What will happen? What does Jesus pray will happen when this unity is made manifest? Friends, so that the world will believe that the Father sent the Son. So that the world will believe it. In, in, in evangelicalism that I've been a part of, and Presbyterianism, the Reformed tradition, we talk a lot about something called apologetics. Apologetics is a discipline of thought that thinks about defending the truth of the Christian faith. Particularly to folks who don't believe it. Uh, maybe they're in other religious traditions uh, or they don't have faith. And it comes from the Apostle Peter saying, always be prepared to give a reason or make a defense for the hope that you have in you. Right? And people go to great lengths in apologetics to demonstrate the truth of Christian faith. And I think that that's an okay enterprise. Uh, There might be some questions we'd want to raise about some of the way that's done. But here's the thing that I worry about. In the midst of all that intellectual debate, all that struggle, which, by the way, has caused its own friction amongst those who represent different schools of apologetics, you know, the right way that you've got to do this, which fosters discord and disunity amongst people... That overlooks the scriptural mode, the scriptural way that we see the truthfulness of the reality that the Father sent the Son 
being manifest in the world. How do we do that? Jesus prays that one of the most fundamental things we show is that we are one. That when we live the way that Jesus prays that we live, the world will believe. That they'll see that and say, there's really something to this. Which when you contrast that kind of vision contained in Jesus' prayer with question number two in the poll, why don't people participate, attend church, the gathering of the intentional disciples of Jesus, while they're always fighting. It's a pretty big problem. If our unity that Jesus prays for is going to be a basis on which the truth that the Father sent the Son and that the Son loves the world is going to be made known in the world, what does our unity, bitterness, backbiting, and discord produce? Well, it's given lots of people reason to say, there's nothing to that. It looks just like everything else. The unity of the church, the unity of those who are disciples of Jesus, who have believed based on the words of the disciples, is not an extra It's not something nice to do. It's something that we are to be diligent to pursue. Scripture tells us that time and again. The Apostle Paul, be diligent to preserve the unity of the church in humility. Uh, Titus chapter 3, have nothing to do with Certain conversations, debates about the law, genealogies, they look like they have wisdom, but they don't profit anything. Warn a factious person once and a second time. And after that, this is strong language, after that, put them out. Because it's perverse and sinful. It's contrary to God's intention. And it's interesting that in the New Testament it's true that Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. My being in the world is going to commit people to making a choice. And in that choosing There's going to be struggle. And in some cases, family members will even find themselves at odds over me. But you won't find any place in Scripture ever where the Spirit of God is doing anything other than fostering unity, working to promote unity amongst the people who have chosen to follow Jesus and participate in Jesus' mission in the world, ever. The unity of the church and being diligent to preserve that unity, I would suggest, is one of the most fundamental acts of discipleship that we can perform as Christians. It's what Scripture teaches. It's what Jesus prays for. Here at the end, as He's preparing to see uh, 
preparing to go to the garden, preparing to go to the cross to, in a real sense, finish the work that the Father sent Him to do. This is the prayer. I'd suggest it's more important than reading our Bibles every day, having devotions. Those are good things. How do we foster the unity that Jesus prays for? Here in the midst of the local gathering and in relationships with other communities of folks who are trying to follow Jesus. Some people say, yeah, but you know, some of those folks are so different. They might be liberals or worse than that, dispensationalists. For some Presbyterians, Lutherans, Baptists, Charismatics, Pentecostals. But it's the Spirit that's working that out. Those differences, I'd suggest, are part of the outworking of the Spirit, promoting the life of the body. But in 1 Corinthians 12, if you go read the chapter, I won't turn there, we're told at the beginning, in the midst of this diversity, that what binds it together is that by the power of the Spirit, all those confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let me end by asking this question. I said we'd come to a spiritual challenge. Because it's great to talk about this, but how do we enact this? How do we live out what Scripture calls us to what Jesus prays for. How do we live that out? Let's turn real quickly to Philippians 2, which has two foci, two focal points. One, the person of Jesus. And two, us. Paul says this in the beginning of verse 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, one with Christ, any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Here it is. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And in that way, you have the attitude that was in Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God something to be claimed, a privilege to be asserted, but rather emptied himself. Consider others ahead of ourselves. Look to the interests of others, not only ourselves. That's a challenge, friends. In a, in a context in which we are conditioned to uh, think about things like um, the primacy of our own thinking 
how we look at Scripture, how we think things ought to be done, with many times an assumption that the way that we look at things really is the right way. Can I suggest that there isn't that kind of universal reason that God has uh, woven difference into the fabric of the created order as an outworking of who God is in God's self as the one who is three. And therefore, in living this out, considering others before ourselves, understanding our dependence on the thought of others who think differently than we do. That in doing that, we are promoting the unity of the body of Christ, but also living in a way that pleases God. This also points to where the ultimate unity of the church is found. Where is the ultimate unity of the church found? It's not in our sameness. It's not that we share, and I hope this doesn't get under anybody's skin, it's not common doctrine. I think doctrine's important. But at the end of the day, the unity of the church is not found in the doctrines we share or the beliefs we have about Jesus It's in the living person of Jesus Himself who is in our midst. And as we commit ourselves to following Him in His Lordship, understanding that we all have shortcomings, that we need others, and we gather around His living presence, that's where we find our unity. And the presence of Jesus, the example of Jesus, is an example that calls us to turn away from self, to not assert the privileges that we think we might have, the rights that we have, but rather for the sake of others to follow the path of Jesus who didn't assert assert those things before God, but let them go and became a bondservant and even followed the will of God to the point of death for our sake, for us. And then Jesus tells us later in John, As the Father sent me, so I send you. The things that I came to do, the things that are here in Philippians 2, I'm now sending you, those who have believed in me through the words of the disciples, that you might do that in the world as well. We sang it. Change me so that I can bring change. That's what God's calling us to. To participate in that very mission that the Father sent the Son on. We'll just close with the last verses here of John 20 or 17, 20 through 26. 
I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the challenge of your word this morning. Lord, we have to stand before you and confess our shortcomings and repent of the many ways in which we have too often failed to be diligent in attending to the unity of the church by our conduct, by the things that we say. Forgive us, Lord, for focusing so much on ourselves and our own interests. Teach us to be faithful disciples who look to the interests of others who attend to others as a manifestation of our love for you. We pray that in this way you will make us more, ever more faithful participants in the mission that you sent the Son on, on our behalf. Help us to be faithful as we carry that on for the sake of the world, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we...